So we are in Numbers chapter 6 this week, and this section of Numbers that we're in, we're still in the preparation section. Remember, Israel is still camped outside or around the base of Mount Sinai. They have been there for about a year, and God has been giving them the regulations. They've installed the priesthood. They've built the tabernacle. Um, they've, they've begun functioning. They've ordered their camp, or they've gotten the orders to group their camps according to their tribes. They've been organized. They, it's kind of like a, it's, it's a lot like a boot camp for Israel. They, you, know, you don't just draft somebody into the army and then give them a gun and say the enemy is that way. Like you actually take them to boot camp where you prep them, where they have to do stuff like make their beds and march. And yeah, if you've been through boot camp, you remember, you have to do a lot of things that seemingly have nothing to do with killing an enemy in battle, but they have everything to do with creating a cohesive unit that works as one, that has a sense of community, and that's organized. And that's part of what God's doing in this section of Numbers. Is he's organizing Israel. He's turning them into His army because they are going to march as an army into Canaan. They are an army not of soldiers, though. They're an army of basically slaves. Their weaponry is going to be practically non-existent. And we're going to see that God's promise, His end of the covenant bargain is, look, march with me. Go against who I tell you to go against. Don't presume my presence. Follow my commands. I'll fight the battle. And that's the promise that they have that's part of the covenant. That's the whole thing of God keeping His end of the bargain. He's to be the king who leads them into battle. And unlike the other nations, He will be the king who largely fights and wins their battles. So that a small group of Israelites can put to flight a large army of these powerful Canaanites who we'll see later, later in uh, the books of the Bible. So they're prepared, and we've looked at how the camp was prepared and how there was to maintain purity, to maintain holiness, to maintain cohesive units among the clans and among the families. The ritual we looked at last week was to prevent things like jealousy and splintering based on accusations and unfaithfulness. Um, it, it was all with a mind towards keeping that purity both among the relationships between God and people and the relationships between people and other people. And so remember, God's ethic is always cross-shaped, right? It's always vertical and horizontal, and both of those have to be in tune. So now then, the question will, that will arise is, okay, the priests have been separated, the Levites have been separated, they're consecrated. Does that mean that the rest of Israel is just kind of secular, and the priests get to be the ones who are holy and anointed and consecrated? And that's when we come to chapter 6, and we find out about this certain type of vow that Israelite, any Israelite could make called the vow of the Nazarite. And this is a term that gets used elsewhere in Scripture, but it's really, it's not a word. I mean, it's a word, but it's not an English word. It's just a transliteration. It's, just a, it's from the word nezer, which means to separate. So it's the vow of separation. Is, is all it is. We just call it Nazarite because when they translated it into English, they didn't, there wasn't really a good English word for it. But this is a vow that was known in the world already. And this is the point to keep in mind as we read this chapter. Nazarites were something that were already taking place. This chapter doesn't introduce the concept of being a Nazarite to Israel. They already knew it from the ancient Near East. This, this section legislates it. 
This section tells them this is how you're going to do this thing. And we saw last week with that ritual of the woman and the husband and the suspicion of, suspicion of jealousy. We saw how last week that also was echoed in the Babylonian culture in particular and other cultures. And I read you that excerpt from Hammurabi's Law. This is very likely has parallels in the other cultures as well. This, this idea of separating yourself, of being a holy man or a holy woman. Every religion, every culture has some type of monastic or monk-like separate category of people. And so God was saying, if you're going to do this, He doesn't say you have to do this, but He says if you're going to do this, this is how you're going to do it. So He starts off in chapter 6, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites. Say to them, if a man or a woman wants to make a special vow, and the Hebrew of that is the root word that's used in that. It's not the normal word for vow. It's, it's the word for basically miraculous or wondrous. It's the word pilah, and it just means like a marvelous thing, this wondrous sign. Um, it, it's emphasizing this is not just a vow like a normal everyday vow, you know, like I promise to bring back your oxen or I vow to, you know, serve this person or whatever. This is like a, this is a specific special vow. If a man or woman wants to make a special vow, a vow of separation to the Lord for separateness, that's literally how you would say it, but in English it says vow of separation to the Lord as a Nazarite. So every time you read Nazarite, just read separated one or consecrated one or, or, or other, separate. He must abstain from wine and other fermented drink and must not drink vinegar made from wine or from other fermented drink. He must not drink grape juice or eat grapes or raisins. As long as he is a Nazarite, he must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. So the first point of this vow is if you are going to separate yourself under this vow, you can have nothing to do with fruit of the vine. Nothing to do with it. Not even the husks, the seeds, the skins. Nothing. Now, this, people have wondered, okay, what's the big deal? Well, it's not because the fruit of the vine is bad. We've seen that. In fact, when God spies out the land, when He sends the spies in chapter 13, and they come back with the report of the land, they're going to come back bringing a cluster of grapes so big they have to carry it between two of them on a pole hanging from it because the land is going to be basically exploding with grapes, with the vine, with, with wine is the symbol of Canaan. And that may be part of what's influencing this. It's not that wine is bad. God's going to bless Israel. And, and, and frequently blessing is referred to wine is a term of blessing or, or abundant vine is a term of blessing or safety or peace. But in this instance, it may possibly have to do with the fact that Canaan and, and all of the fertility among Canaan, the fertility cults and the foreign gods and goddesses, all of it is wrapped up in Canaan's viniculture as a, as a wine, grape. It, later the prophets will condemn Israel for kind of flirting with or embracing pagan deities. And they'll talk about you giving your offerings to Yahweh and then going and eating your raisin cakes at the high places or things like that. So, so even raisins, even just the, the, the grape, the vine, all of that could vary. It's not ironclad. It's not 100% certain, but it's as good a reason as any why this might possibly be a prohibition saying, look, you're going into this place and you're going to live among this and this is part of everyday life. The vine, the wine, all of it symbolizes the good things in life. If you're going to make one of these vows of separation, you're going to abstain from that. You're going to fast from what would normally be fine. 
you're going to make a special separation. So that's the whole point. It's, it's a giving up of something that's good that could possibly have a symbol of, of the finer things or the excess or, or, or the good life. Um, again, not 100% why these vows or these uh, regulations are put in place the way they are, but we do have enough from Scripture to say this is what this would have seemed like to the person taking it. So, <clears throat> goes on to say, it'd be like saying you're going to be separate, you're going to be a Nazarite, you're going to go into Italy, no pasta. Right? Like that's just kind of what it's known. No pasta, no pizza. I'm going to Italy, I've got to taste something. Nope, nope. If you're going to be a separate, you're going to be separate. That, that's kind of how it may feel, maybe. Maybe that's a bad analogy. Um, you're going to come to Ruth's Chris, no steak. Right? It's something like that, who knows. So that's the first thing. <clears throat> Uh, the second, verse 5, during the entire period of his vow of separation, no razor may be used on his head. He must be holy until the period of his separation to the Lord is over. Now this says he the whole time, but it's already said if a man or a woman. This is a normal biblical thing. It uses one person, the, the third person masculine singular, but it applies to both genders. So it's not just saying if it's a guy, the guys have to do this and the women don't. It's, it's inclusive. That's just part of how their language works. Uh, no razor, uh, let's see, he must be holy until the period of his separation to the Lord is over. He must let the hair of his head grow long. Throughout the period of his separation to the Lord, he must not, so that's the second one, hair's got to grow long. Third one, he must not go near a dead body. Even if his own father or mother or brother or sister dies, he must not make himself ceremonially unclean on account of them. Because the symbol of his separation to God is on his head. Throughout the period of his separation, he is consecrated to the Lord. So now what we see, the second and third things that are involved with the Nazarite vow, and by the way, this is a, this is a temporary vow. It's not permanent. It's not lifelong. Now there will be those who are specially called to lifelong Nazarite vow. Later, Samson will be the most famous one of them all, but also Samuel. There will be others who are Nazarites, but in general, it was a specific vow, temporary, for a certain amount of time, 30 days or you know, maybe longer. So it's not like this whole lifestyle forever. But during the time, the hair is going to grow long. The hair is going to become basically like an uncultivated vineyard, like a, like a natural growth. The, it's, you're not going to, you know, Israelites cut their hair. They, they were commanded, not like Canaanites, you know, don't shave the sides of your hair, don't shave your beards, don't do ritual cutting of hair as some of the other ancient pagan practices did because back then, hair in some parts was seen as, as, as kind of a living extension of your body. You know, even though hair is technically dead cells being pushed out of your follicles, it was still seen as, you know, even you'll see even today advertisements for healthy hair. It's, it's dead stuff being pushed out of your, like it does, it's not healthy. Your hair will never be healthy, but it can be pretty, it can be nice, it can be cultivated, it can be done nicely. Not for the Nazarite. This is part of this abstaining. You're going to not eat the fine things and you're going to not take care of your hair in the way that everybody normally would. You're going to let it grow. It's, it's, you're, you're growing it out. And it gives us a clue, <clears throat> for the, verse 7, it says, um, the symbol of his separation to God is on his head. Now, the, that, the wording used there, symbol of his separation, that's, again, the verb of Nazarite, symbol of his separateness, symbol of his Nazariteness. But it's also used elsewhere back in Leviticus when it described <clears throat> the diadem of the priest. 
So back, back in Leviticus 8, when we were studying that last year, and it talked about the priest putting the turban on the priest's head, and then you'll put the diadem, the sacred crown on the turban, and then you'll anoint them, pour oil on both of them, and then the priest is consecrated, and the priest can't leave the holy place because he has duties to perform and sacrifices to give and atonement to make. The priest is, is ready to go. So he can't just run out because then he'll get defiled again, and the whole process has to start over. Well, that's this image of this. Only the Nazarites didn't live in the tabernacle. Nazarites weren't hermits. They didn't live in caves. They didn't go off and separate themselves from society. They lived in and among the Israelites. The symbol of their anointing, of their separateness, was not the diadem crown that made sure that they had to stay in the tabernacle. The symbol of their anointing was their hair. Their long, unkempt, or messy, or, or just kind of bedhead, permanent bedhead. Like they, they had... You could tell that was their turban. That was their diadem. It was on their head. So they weren't to defile themselves. Just as remember, some of you weren't here, some of you were. You may remember the high priest says even the high priest, if his own father dies, the high priest can't be the one that goes near the corpse to bury him because that will profane the high priest. So this is taking an aspect of the high priesthood and extending it out into the realms outside of that sacred tabernacle space. Nazarites were like an extension of like, like arms of an octopus or so, like this extension of the tabernacle in and among Israel. So there are ways that there are things that they have to do that are symbolic of the high priest. And this is one of them, not even being able to go near a dead body, even to bury. And that was your duty. Like we live in the day of morticians and, you know, coroners. And I've, I've never, ever done anything with a dead body. I've, I mean, I've preached at funerals, but even then there's a casket or... or, or there, we have a separation from death. We're hermetically sealed from it. But back then when somebody died, you know who the coroner was? You know who the pallbearers and the funeral directors and all that? It was the next of kin. If your parents died, you cleaned the body. You prepared it for burial. You put it in the earth. That's how it is in a lot of cultures around the world today, still, but not for us. Well, that was a sacred duty. That wasn't just like, ah, I don't feel like taking out the trash today. Ah, I don't feel like taking out dad today. Like, it wasn't like that. You, that was one of your most sacred roles. If you're a Nazarite, once again, a good thing. Even that you have to abstain from because of your higher vow that you've made. This, this vow of separation to God that you willingly choose to make, that should be emphasized, willingly choose to do this, if you do it, it takes priority over everything. Everything. Yet again, God telling His people, if you're following Me, you can't do it half-heartedly. And if you're going to say you're consecrated to Me, if you're going to separate yourself to Me, if you're going to try to be holy in a way that approaches or somewhat comes near of what I've called the, particularly the Levites and the priests to do, you can't do it half-heartedly. It's all or nothing. Even down to the most intimate and, and um, honorific thing that you are required to do for your family. Now this sheds a little light on some weird stuff in the New Testament. And this is why I love studying the Old Testament. Some of you may have remembered in Luke's Gospel. <clears throat> it's, it's, I'll, I'll, I'll read it. It's Luke chapter 8. It's just this random, very random encounter that Jesus has. And it doesn't seem to make any sense. Uh, 
Well, I will try. I will try to make sense. It's, it's the New Testament, so that's kind of out of my wheelhouse. In, um, wait, Matthew 8. Matthew 8. See, New Testament, I get confused. Matthew chapter 8. <clears throat> Down in verse uh, 18, it's just kind of a section. Jesus heals some people and casts out demons and does this stuff. And then in verse 18, says, when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. Now a teacher comes to him. Jesus, this is not the disciples. He didn't say, hey, you follow me. This is a person willingly coming and saying, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests. The son of man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first, let me go bury my father. Chapter 8. Verse 18. So another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. And then he gets in a boat and calms a storm. Now this is a weird saying of Jesus and it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. You got these two disciples or, or this two separate occasions, whatever, people coming to Jesus to follow him. I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus was always getting people wanting to follow him. He only called 12, but he always had these people like hangers on. And he would intentionally do stuff to drive them away or to show them, hey, the stakes are higher than you think. I'm not just a popular teacher. I'm not starting a mega church today. I'm not being seeker sensitive. I have a mission and my mission will require 100% devotion. And if you're not 100% devoted to me, leave now. This is the opposite of the buddy Jesus that many of us have in our minds. But when he says that phrase, and people have always thought this is really harsh. He says, I want to follow you. So somebody wanting to follow Jesus, right? That's a good thing. That's what we're supposed to tell everybody to do. Follow Jesus, follow Jesus. Four spiritual laws, you know, six steps to peace. You know, come follow this way. Come to my church, watch this worship service. Get excited, jump in, make your commitment. That's what we're pressing during Jesus' lifetime, had somebody willingly coming up and saying, I want to follow you. First, my dad just died. Let me go bury him, and then I'll come with you. That seems like a perfectly reasonable thing. That seems like a holy thing. That seems like an obligation that that person would have to do in that society. And Jesus says, you follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Kind of a harsh response. What Jesus was doing, what he was implying in that statement would have hearkened back to, remember it was a teacher of the law that came up to him and then another one after him, but would have hearkened back to the Torah and back to the Nazarite vow. Is if Jesus was the true high priest, you know, Jesus, there's a whole kind of motif of him being the high priest and being coming corpse contaminated, only instead of being contaminated, he undoes the whole thing by raising the dead. So he like does contamination in the other direction. But that's a whole issue. But for those who are going to come after him, it's like he likens the call to the vow of a Nazarite in the Old Testament. If you're going to come after me, if you're going to be my disciple, the devotion that you must have to me must be, and this would have been communicated through that, or at least hinted at, must be on par with a Nazarite. You, if you're going to follow me, separate from everything. 
including even your most pressing family obligations. Oh, Jesus said, you know, I haven't come to bring peace, but a sword. I've come to set mother against uh, daughter, father against son. People of their own household will be enemies. Like, Jesus was very clear on his, what he required of his followers. It's called discipleship. It's not emphasized in churches as much as it should be. Discipleship is the whole thing that comes after you make the decision to follow. The decision to follow is easy. Anybody can make that decision. I mean, ask Billy Graham. Every rally he's ever had, thousands of people do. But Billy Graham will also be the first person to say 97% of those fall away. They don't, they don't, they don't become disciples. They just made a decision and in the moment. They're kind of like those followers or those teachers of the law. It's exciting. You get fired up. Everybody's there. There's a smoke machine and the band's playing the song that's really cool and you got goosebumps and everybody's praising and, and you're just like, I'm giving my life to the Lord. And then the next day in traffic, there's no Jesus. There's no commitment. You know, as soon as that relationship presents itself with temptation, Jesus, what? That was just in the moment. That was just a, a, an excitement thing. That's the difference between the different soils like Jesus talked about that where the seed takes root or the good fish and the bad fish, or the wheat and the weeds. All these parables, all these images Jesus used, all of them, it's, it's much like this vow of the Nazarite going all the way back. If you made a vow of the Nazarite, you had to keep it. It was, it was not a just half-hearted thing. So that's one of the images that Jesus draws from in the New Testament to describe what it means to follow him. So understanding this Nazarite vow and, and what happens helps us with that, helps us hear an echo of Scripture that we may have otherwise missed. I mean, how many of you ever connected Jesus' saying to this chapter in Numbers, unless you were specifically studying it and looking at commentaries and where they noted it? Most people haven't. So that's, again, why we study these books of the Old Testament like Numbers and Leviticus and when we do Deuteronomy. These are the books people skip, but we skip them to our own peril because we miss things. This is why reading the Old Testament helps you go from reading the New Testament. It's like a black and white TV with a fuzzy antenna to full color. I used to say HD, but now it's like, what, 4K HD? I don't even know what the newest thing is, but that's the difference. It, It makes the New Testament come alive. So let's finish up then. Um, what if this vow gets broken? Like you can choose not to eat uh, grapes, you can choose not to cut your hair, but sometimes you can't choose to be defiled by a dead body because people can die around you. I mean, that, this is not really a concern of ours today, but it was back then, especially for people that worked in the fields or, 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 or in dangerous situations or before medicine. And, and pe- I mean, people died. They died in your house. You all lived together. You did, there weren't nursing homes. There weren't, it was just you were all together. So if somebody dies under your roof in the night, you're asleep. You, didn't, you couldn't get out of the house before they died. So what happens? Well, verse 9, if someone dies suddenly in his presence, thus defiling the hair he has dedicated. Remember, the hair is the symbol of the consecration. It's like the priest's turban. He must shave his head on the day of his cleansing, the seventh day. So in other words, take care of the dead body. Do the purification seven days. That was back in Leviticus. Remember that you're defiled by a corpse. And then after that's over, on the seventh day, reshave the head because the head's become the hair has become contaminated, um, symbolically contaminated, ritually contaminated. So shave it off. Then on the eighth day, he must bring two doves, two young pigeons, to the priest at the tent of meeting. The priest is to offer one as a sin offering. And remember, sin offerings was an offering for purification for sins that were unintentionally committed. 
is a purification offering. That's what the first one is. And the other as a burnt offering. And a burnt offering, remember, was dedication. It was the one that was given entirely to God. So symbolically, okay, I, I sinned, but I didn't mean to. I didn't really sin. I just I defiled myself, became defiled. So sin offering for that. And then burnt offering because I'm rededicating myself to this vow. The priest is to offer one, sin offering, one, burnt offering. Uh, verse 12, he must dedicate himself to the Lord for a period of his separation. And, and that could be he must rededicate because that's what he's doing. And must bring a year old male lamb as a guilt offering. The, and the guilt offering is, has to do with, um, with repairing something that's, that's uh, gone astray between you and between God or between you and someone else. Uh, the previous days do not count because he's become defiled during this separation. Now, so basically that's it. If, you, if the vow gets broken, you're not released from it. You made the vow. Let's say 10 days in, you know, somebody dies, you're defiled. What do you do? You got to start over. You got to keep the original vow. This is not an easy thing. It's intentionally making it hard. Verse 13, now, this is the law for the Nazarite. When the period of his separation is over, when the vow's done, when you've fulfilled your vow, you've gone all 30 days or a year or however long, he's to be brought to the entrance of the Timon meeting. There he is to present his offerings to the Lord. A year-old lamb without defect for a burnt offering. There's that dedication. A year-old lamb without defect for a sin offering. That's the purification for any of the things he may have unintentionally done during the time. A ram without defect for a fellowship offering. That was the celebration offering. That was like the communal meal. Together with their grain offerings and drink offerings and a basket of bread made without yeast, cakes made of fine flour mixed with oil and wafers spread with oil on them. The priest is to present before the Lord and make the sin offering and the burnt offering. He's to present the basket of unleavened bread and is to sacrifice the ram as a fellowship offering to the Lord together with its grain offering and drink offering. All last year, we looked at this back in January and February of last year. Go back and check the video if you want to know what these actually symbolize. Then at the entrance of the tent of meeting, the Nazarite, at the tabernacle, the Nazarite must shave off the hair that he dedicated. So by this time, he's probably got a big, thick growth. Shave it all off. Uh... The priest is, uh, after that's right. Oh, yeah, he is to shave off the hair that he is dedicated. He is to take the hair and put it in the fire that is under the sacrifice of the fellowship offering. The hair becomes part of the burnt offering. The hair is itself offered back to God, holy and consumed. After the Nazarite has shaved off the hair of his dedication, the priest is to place his hands on a boiled shoulder of the ram. A cake and a wafer from the basket, both made without yeast. The priest shall then wave them before the Lord as a wave offering. They are holy and belong to the priest, together with the breast that was waved and the thigh that was presented. After that, the Nazarite may drink wine. This is the law of the Nazarite who vows his offering to the Lord in accordance with his separation. In addition to whatever else he can afford, he must fulfill the vow he has made according to the law of the Nazarite. Separation. At the end of this, it's a celebration. That's what these offerings are. It's not a solemn thing. It's not a downcast thing. It's not an obligation as much as I've finished this period of time. I've kept my vow. I'm now giving back to God the consecration. And you don't just throw it away because it's sacred. It's consecrated. So your crown, your turban, you give back to the Lord by offering as a burnt offering. That's what burnt offerings were. They were burnt up in smoke. And literally the image was the smoke of the offering rising up is giving it to God taking it out of the material world and giving it to God through transforming it through fire. Why? Because God is a consuming fire. 
So all this imagery is going on. And this is a celebration. All this stuff about the fellowship offering and the wave offering. Remember, back in Leviticus, if you don't remember, watch the videos on my website. But back in Leviticus, a wave offering, you waved it and then you took it back. It was God's way of saying, you're offering it to me, good. Now you can have it back. And you would eat that with the priest and the offerer and the family members and the community and everybody who's celebrating. That's why he says, in addition to whatever else he can afford. Because if it was a big vow or if it was an ordeal or if it was something that you wanted to celebrate, you brought a lot. It was a potluck dinner. It was a family night supper. It was all of those things. It was, it was a celebration together that this event was over or this ordeal. Sometimes Nazarite vows would be undertaken to get you through an ordeal. It's very similar, not entirely 100% the same, but it's similar to the spirit behind fasting in the Old Testament. When you fast, it's giving up something in order to plead for God to do something or to hear God or to heighten your ability to communicate or to hear from or to be led by God. It's to, to, to suppress the physical in order to elevate the spiritual. That's what a Nazarite vow was, only to a much greater extreme. So in this section, this is how God is saying all of Israel can partake in my holiness of the tabernacle without or outside of the regular everyday worship. If they choose to do this separation vow, if they choose to make a vow, if they choose to be holy, then that's fine. This is how you're going to do it. And so he puts this in place. And then the last thing we end with, verse 22, the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you're to bless the Israelites. Say to them, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift His face toward you and give you peace. And so they will put My name on the Israelites and I will bless them. Now blessing again in the ancient world, blessing was not just after somebody sneezes or an obligatory, let's say, a prayer before we eat so we have good manners. Blessing was actually giving, imparting something to someone. It was speaking something over someone, not in a magic way, not in a name it and claim it way, but in a way that was, that was kind of halfway between a command and a, and a petition. It was, it was, for the high priest here, putting the name of Yahweh on his people. Having the name of someone on you was very significant. It represented their authority, their favor, their protection. You were their ambassador. You were an extension of them. So it has all of these connotations in the world of the Bible that it doesn't have today, but it gives us clues again into what Jesus meant when he said things like, anything you ask in my name, you will be given. It, it, it keeps us from looking at that as magic word formula or, oh, which name of God? Well, I've got to research the Hebrew root to say the right name. Right? It keeps that from being in that and saying, look, this is the point. In my name means walking in covenant with me and taking on my identity and living that out in the world that I'm calling you to. And that's what the calling of God was for Israel as a whole. And that's what the calling of his people in the New Testament today is as well. So we're out of time. Next week, we're wrapping up. We've got chapter 7, 8, 9. And 10 is when the final preparations are made. Next week, longest chapter in the Torah. Uh, after that, then, there's a final few things that will be done, and then Israel sets out and the narrative picks up and things go off the rails, as usual. So come back and we will see you then. Have a great week.